Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. I trust that everyone in this room has heard of Harry S. Truman. Uh, Harry S. Truman, of course, served as the 33rd president of the United States. He's famous for being the president who authorized the dropping of atomic weapons on Japan to end World War II. And you know him all, of course, uh, because he was actually born just a little ways down the road here in Lamar, Missouri. So, again, I imagine all of you know of Harry S. Truman. But I wonder, do you know the story of Harry R. Truman? Harry was what you might call a success in life. Born in 1896 in West Virginia to a family of mountain folk, his family eventually settled in the state of Washington. He served in the Great War, World War I, as an airplane mechanic uh, in a time when the possibilities of flight were just beginning to be discovered. During the war, Harry learned what it was like to survive against the odds. A mere six months into his military service, the troop ship that was carrying Harry to the front was torpedoed by a German U-boat. Over 200 men died in that disaster, 15 from Harry's squadron. But Harry survived. One day during the war, Harry was performing a test flight on one of the planes he was working on. When during the test flight, he was attacked by a German fighter. Though his plane was damaged in the attack, Harry survived without a scratch. After the war, he married, had two children, and owned and operated a gas station before moving to the scenic Pacific Northwest. It was there that he started a successful business. He owned and operated a lodge in a beautiful resort area at the foot of a mountain in the state of Washington. He owned 54 acres of land in this area and over 100 boats that he would rent out on a nearby lake. In fact, he even once entertained a Supreme Court justice at his lodge. But sad to say, as successful as Harry had become with this business, it had one significant flaw. You see, his business was called the Mount St. Helens Lodge, and it was located at Spirit Lake at the foot of Mount St. Helens. In 1980, after Harry had operated this lodge for over 52 years, scientists discovered some startling news about this volcanic mountain. And that is, it was about to erupt. And Harry's lodge was directly in the path of the predicted destruction. Of course, when news came of the impending eruption, everyone in the area took heed to the scientists' warnings, everyone that is except for Harry. Harry determined to stay. Some say he stayed out of concern for his property. Others believed he felt the need to live up to the media attention he was receiving at the time. But even with these motivators, we have to ask ourselves, why would one stay in such a situation of impending death? And the answer is that Harry didn't believe the scientists' claims were accurate. He said they were over-exaggerated. He was once quoted as saying, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it'll, it to the point that I'm going to pack up. He believed nothing was going to happen to his mountain, and so he was slow to take any action. In fact, even in the months leading up to the eruption, when the earthquakes on the mountain were so violent that it would not carry out of bed, he would only respond by moving his mattress to the basement instead. Later on, his niece would explain that even if Harry did believe the mountain would explode, he still probably thought it would be a slow matter and he could be rescued in time. Harry said, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me, boy. Unfortunately for Harry, the mountain did explode. And when it did, it wasn't slow. Far from it. The, the eruption actually occurred at a speed of over 300 miles per hour. As his niece later put it, one scientist told us Truman probably had time to turn his head. 
And with that, the life of Harry R. Truman ended buried beneath 150 feet of, 150 feet of volcanic debris. It's with this picture in mind that we turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 today. You see, as we attempt to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, it's not uncommon to feel like we're the scientists in this story. We're telling everyone, get off the mountain. Please flee from the impending doom. Come to safety. The only difference is that there isn't just one man clinging to his possessions and livelihood on this mountain. Rather, it seems as if it's the whole world who thinks this way. And we're made out to be the stubborn ones. We're even mocked because we believe in something that can't be seen. And so the numbers against us are so overwhelming. So many seem to doubt and so few believe that before long we may begin to think that everyone else is right. We begin to think, you know, maybe it's me who doesn't get it. Maybe I should be on that mountain protecting my things, along with everyone else. In the passage we're studying today, we'll find that Paul reassures us of our position. He encourages us. He gives us confidence to continue to proclaim this message, even when it is unpopular. In this passage, Paul is going to discuss two competing schools of thought, two competing philosophies, two different kinds of wisdom. However, unlike in the case of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, this is not a competition between the wisdom of an old man on his mountain and the scientists who predicted its eruption. Rather, it's a discussion that pits the wisdom of men versus the wisdom and power of God. And in this discussion, Paul teaches us that we can have confidence in the gospel in spite of the world's rejection. We can have confidence in the gospel in spite of the world's rejection. The passage, once again, is 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. Paul gives us two reasons why we can have confidence in the gospel in spite of the world's rejection. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Verses 18-25. through 25. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Once again, in this passage, Paul gives us two reasons why we can have confidence in the gospel in spite of the world's rejection. And the first reason is this. Number one, because God intends to save through power, not wisdom. We can have confidence in the gospel when the world rejects it because God intends to save through power, not wisdom. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Paul says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the described? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Though Paul had stayed in Corinth a year and a half on his initial visit to the city, and though Corinth was itself an incredibly gifted church spiritually, it was yet an immature church. The city of Corinth was itself famous for its immorality. In fact, in the ancient world, to act like a Corinthian was a euphemism uh, used to describe an immoral person. And yet, under the Lord's direction, Paul started a church here, a church that in many ways flourished. But of course, like any group of new believers, a church that still reflected the sinful life of the culture they had been saved out of, this Corinthian culture. 
You do a survey of the book of 1 Corinthians and you discover that the Corinthians struggled with many different types of sins. They practiced sexual immorality. They filed lawsuits against each other. They abused their Christian liberty and spiritual gifts for, spiritual, for selfish ends. And they just generally dealt harshly with each other. However, Paul begins this letter by addressing one particular sin issue, which one could easily argue is the root of all these other sins, and that's the sin of pride. Rather than understanding the gospel as a message that humbles, as a message that makes them realize their lowliness and unworthiness and causes them to want to selfishly serve other people out of a love for their Savior who gave himself for them, Instead, the Corinthians saw the gospel as a means for proclaiming their own greatness over others. Rather than seeking to serve others, they actually see the gospel as an opportunity to serve themselves. And one of the ways they seek to serve themselves is by exalting their own spiritual superiority over the other members of the church in order to receive praise and honor from men. In this context, knowledge became one of the standards that the Corinthians used to display their own superiority. The city of Corinth was largely composed of Greek and Roman freedmen, uh, with a few Jews scattered in, and it would appear that the church was likewise composed of a mixture of Jews and Greeks, which meant that in this church there would have basically been two camps. You had the Jews, who loved the knowledge found in the law, the knowledge found in the scriptures, and then you had Greeks saved Gentiles who loved the knowledge found in philosophy. In their desire to show who is best, the Corinthians started to focus on the superiority of these various types of knowledge, and as a result, they began to divide into camps and fight over who possessed the most impressive type of spiritual wisdom. Basically, a kind of rivalry breaks out, where one says, I'm of the school of Paul, and another, I'm of Peter, and another, I'm of Apollos, and finally, even, I'm of Christ. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he has to start by reminding them of a very important fact in order to help dispel this rivalry. And that's the fact that the gospel is not a matter of mere human knowledge. He's basically writing to tell them, you're all a bunch of fools. Don't you realize that the gospel isn't about knowledge. Don't you realize that in all your competitiveness over knowledge, you're actually forgetting that that wasn't how you were saved. Paul begins to dismantle the Corinthians' pride and knowledge by reminding them that they weren't saved according to their knowledge. Far from it. In fact, he reminds them that to the world, the cross is a foolish thing. It's hardly something to boast in. In verse 17, Paul explains that Christ sent him to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. And he explains, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice in this verse, we have two groups who are separated by a common object, and that's the cross. This is Paul's focus here. His subject is the cross, and he's describing the different reactions of these various groups to the cross. In group number one, you have the perishing. The Corinthians are believers, remember. Don't forget this. They know what Paul's talking about here. He's not referring merely to death. I mean, everyone dies. Everyone's perishing in that sense. Rather, Paul's talking about those who are facing eternal punishment in hell. He's talking about unbelievers, those who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, and so therefore will not participate in eternal life. This group sees the message of the gospel one way, and that's folly or foolishness. In group two, you have those who are being saved. Again, the Corinthians are believers, and they understand that Paul's trying to communicate when he references those who are being saved. These are Christians. Paul's talking about believers, those who are not destined to hell, but to eternal life with God because they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Paul says that to this group, the cross is something else entirely. It's the power of God. Note this, by the way, Paul does not say... The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. 
Instead, he says it is the power of God. That's interesting. You would think that Paul would contrast folly with wisdom, since that's its opposite. But that's not what he does. Instead, he contrasts wisdom with the power of God. Why does he do this? I mean, is it because the, the, the cross really is foolishness? Is it because there is no wisdom found in the cross? And no, I mean, if you look here, Paul says that the cross is wisdom and power to those who are being saved in verse 24. Likewise, in chapter 2, verses 6 and through 8, he'll say that there is wisdom in the cross, but it's a hidden wisdom, a wisdom that the rulers of this age haven't understood. However, Paul is saying that the word of the cross is the power of God here because he's wanting to remind the Corinthians of a very important theological fact, which is that no one believes the gospel according to their own wisdom. Rather, they believe by the power of God. In fact, Paul explains that in his sovereignty, God actually desires to confound the wisdom of the world. He says in verses 19 through 20, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Or where is the scribe? Where is the debater, debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, I want you to keep a finger here in 1 Corinthians, and then turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29. I want to go here because if you look, you can see that Paul's actually delivering a quote in verse 19. And that's a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. And that quote, in its context is significant to understanding this passage. So go ahead and turn there. And as you turn there, let me set the scene for you. When these words were said, Isaiah 29, which Paul's quoting, when these words were said, the Assyrians were invading Judah. Judah had provoked Assyria by refusing to pay tribute, which Assyria had demanded. And now after wiping out other rebellious far, nations far more powerful than Judah, Assyria has turned its attention to Judah and it's coming to punish them for their refusal to pay tribute. That's actually pretty frightening for Israel. It's scary because when the Assyrians beat you, they don't just beat you. I mean, they crush you. The Assyrians often committed atrocities so heinous that honestly, I don't even want to try to describe them to you. They're just kind of gross and it wouldn't be polite. And now Judah has that nation coming after them. Judah doesn't believe that they can beat a nation as powerful as Assyria on their own. And so what's happened is they've turned to Egypt for help. And this infuriates God. He responds by saying, And the Lord said, this is verse 13, Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is, command, is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Uh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are done in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay and the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. You see, the people in Judah at this time were claiming that God is mighty and powerful with their lips. They were saying that he's an almighty deliverer and protector with their lips in their worship, but when they needed help, they turned to the Egyptians. They turned to a nation that trusted in false gods, who worshiped false gods, and then they asked them for help. And this is false worship, and it mocks God. In their arrogance, the people act like God doesn't know the difference between true and false worship. They act like God can't see into their hearts. They act like they can fool God. They act like they're really the one in control of their future, not God. 
So God reveals how he's going to judge this nation for their sin in this chapter, Isaiah 29. Of course, we don't have time to discuss all of this in detail here this morning, but I, I could give you just sort of a brief overview. Here in chapter 29, verses 1 through 4, God foretells the coming disaster that's going to come on Israel with the Assyrian siege. God says, I'm going to discipline you for this. I'm going to discipline you for treating me this way. In verses 5 through 8, God foretells the deliverance that he's going to bring. He's going to lift the siege that the Assyrians are going to bring against Jerusalem. He says that he's going to discipline. He's going to allow the siege to take place, but it isn't going to last forever. God's going to deliver them from it. Then in verses 9 through 12, God says, but you're not going to understand it because I'm going to shut the eyes of your spiritual leaders. This judgment I've predicted is going to come upon you and you're not going to repent until it's done. You're not going to understand what I'm saying to you. And then verses 17 through 18, God says, and then when I'm done disciplining you, I'm going to open your eyes so that you can see and understand what I've done. God says to Judah, you don't think I can beat the Assyrians. You don't think I'm in control. But let me show you just how much in control I am. I'm going to predict the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what will happen from the beginning to the end, and I'm going to do it clearly. I'm going to send Assyria to discipline you, and then I'm going to send them away by my own power. Again, without any of your help, without letting them fulfill their desire to conquer you. But here's the thing. I'm going to shut your eyes so you can't see it. I'm going to shut your ears so that you can't understand it. I'm going to confuse your mind so you can't understand this prediction until it's all over. And then when everything is said and done, I'll open your eyes and you'll see the mighty power of my work, that it is I who control everything. God is demonstrating his power in response to the arrogance of this people by putting the truth in front of them and then willfully blinding them so they won't believe or receive that truth. Now flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here Paul is saying that God is doing the same thing with the cross. That there's a willful blinding taking place. He's saying that God intends to confound any attempts at knowing him through merely human wisdom. And he's saying he's doing this as a display of his sovereign power against mankind who doesn't trust him and who thinks they're wiser than him. And Paul demonstrates this point by reminding the Corinthians of how few PhDs are in their group. Look here at verse 20. He says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He starts off generally. He says, where is the wise man? And then he gets more specific to drive his point home. He says, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And with this, he's really discussing the two groups that are coming up in the context of the Corinthian church, these warring parties. Again, you have the Jews who seek wisdom in the law. And Paul says, well, look, where is the scribe? Where is the wise man according to the law? You know, where is the scribe who knows the word of God, who's able to quote the scripture backwards and forwards, who can tell you every possible interpretation of even the most obscure passages in the scripture? And then he says, where is the debater? Where is this wise man according to the Greek? Again, these are the public speakers who would use these clever arguments to win the approval of their audience. These are men trained in literature, philosophy, and rhetoric. These are men who can intelligently twist a phrase and turn your own arguments against you to prove a point. These are men who are considered to be the best and brightest in the Roman Empire. And in a world in which eloquence was perhaps the primary form of entertainment, the best of these debaters were often the movie stars of their day. This would be like Paul saying to this congregation, where are the Wall Street bankers? Where are the doctors? Where are the lawyers? Where are the astrophysicists and the biological engineers? Now, of course, Paul isn't saying that none of these type have believed. Look here at chapter 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many 
were of noble birth. Paul's not saying that none of these have believed. Rather, his point is that if salvation comes through human wisdom, then why isn't the church loaded with smart people with only kind of a few dumb people scattered in? I mean, if salvation is by human knowledge, then you'd think that statistically... Uh, that'd give guys like Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking like a 99% chance of believing, while you know, someone like us you know, might have maybe a 10% chance. But that's not how it works out in the church, does it? By and large, the church is not made up of the intellectual elites. And it was no different in Corinth. So Paul asked, where is the scribe? And of course, the answer is that they're over in the synagogue looking for righteousness in the law. He asks, where is the debater? And the Corinthians know the debaters are over in some temple bowing down to a rock or burning incense to the emperor. The wise aren't in the church. The Corinthians understand this. They weren't in the church. Rather, they were participating in the very things that completely opposed what the church stood for. And this leads Paul to conclude at the end of verse 20. He says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Translation, has not God done what he said he would do? Again, the Corinthians believe the cross is true. That's not up for debate. This is a strictly a rhetorical question. To say that the wise are not foolish would not only to, to admit their own ignorance, since the wise are not associating with the Corinthians, but it would be to deny the cross itself because the wise don't believe in it. And the result is that the Corinthians recognize God has intended for the wise to reject the cross and he's accomplished that intention. If God intended for the cross to be according to wisdom, then the wise would worship with them. And since they don't, it means that God has not made the cross to be found by human wisdom. Obviously. Again, the problem in Corinth is that you had these people who are competing with each other over what they thought they knew, and Paul is showing them how absolutely foolish it is to do this, how foolish it is to boast in their knowledge. Even the, the very best of their knowledge means nothing before God. All the knowledge in the world does not bring them anywhere closer to a relationship with God. And the Corinthians should be the ones to understand this because they, the, the C students, believe in the gospel. Whereas the A students reject Christ. So then how did the Corinthians come to believe if it's not by wisdom? Paul gives a fuller explanation of this in chapter 2, but it's worth noting now because uh, chapter 2 is really just a part of this same unit of argument which is going to extend all the way into chapter 3. Paul explains how it is they believed in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says they believe by the power of the Spirit of God. Again, verses 12 and 13, chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? He says, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them. Again, why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says that the natural person is unresponsive to God's truth. In the words of Ephesians 2, they are dead in their transgressions and sins. They are unable to respond to God apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God, no one who understands, all have turned away. That is the natural man. We are born into the world spiritually blind and deaf, unable to see and hear the truths of God. And the only way it can be understood is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. God's word in the gospel is a bit like the radio signals passing through this room. I don't know if you ever think about that, but there are radio broadcasts being transmitted through this room right now, telephone conversations. But we don't perceive those signals because we don't have a receiver in our person to pick up those signals and, and interpret them. 
Now, if I had a radio up here, it'd be different. I could turn that radio on, tune it to a specific frequency, and it could translate those radio signals for us. But we lack that ability naturally. And so it is with the gospel. Man is unable to perceive the truth of the gospel naturally according to merely human wisdom. But when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're made capable of believing in God's truth. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Francis Crick. Francis Crick co-discovered the structure of DNA with James Watson in 1953. He received the Nobel Prize for his discovery in 1962. And Francis Crick re rejected Christianity as foolishness. In fact, he once even joked, Christianity may be okay between consenting adults in private, but it should not be taught to young children. That was his attitude towards Christianity. The interesting thing about Francis Crick is that as he continued to study DNA, and as he increasingly realized just how complex our DNA structure is, and as he considered the conditions that would be necessary for life to develop on our planet, he eventually came to the conclusion that life could not have arisen here by accident. That it was simply impossible for life to spontaneously develop on its own. So he determined that there had to be another way, there had to be some other way that life arrived here on earth. And do you know what he finally landed on as a conclusion? It's an idea known as directed panspermia. And do you know what directed panspermia is? It's the theory that space aliens seeded life here from other planets. That's right, the notion that God created life was simply too far-fetched for Francis Crick. It was far more reasonable that we were created by space aliens. Here's a guy who won a Nobel Prize for discovering DNA, and yet when he's faced with the realization that life is simply too complex to develop on its own, he goes, space aliens, that must be it. That's how it happened. I tell you, it can be incredibly perplexing for us as Christians when we see something like that happen. But you have to understand, it doesn't matter how smart a person is until they have the Holy Spirit. They simply can't believe. God illumines our minds and enables us to believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, our eyes and ears are opened. And we can finally see and hear God's truth. Absolutely no one can believe apart from the grace of God. The message of Christ can only seem foolish to those who haven't received that gift. And this is why Paul says, to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God, not the wisdom of God. Why is this so important for you to realize this? I'll tell you, this passage teaches us that there's a reason why you get it and others don't. And that's because you've received the Holy Spirit. They haven't. When so many of our friends and family tell us that we're acting foolish by pursuing the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ, that the way we're living is backwards, that it's upside down, you know, when that happens, and so many act this way, it's very easy to begin to doubt. To think, you know, maybe I'm wrong. You know, all my, all my friends think so. All my family thinks so. Maybe I am backwards. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe it's me who doesn't get it. And friends, this passage can strengthen you by reminding you that you're not the problem. Yes, many will reject the cross, and many will even reject you as you try to live in light of the cross. But the problem isn't that you're wrong, or that the cross really is foolish in some way. The problem is that these others can't understand. They lack the ability to see the cross for what it is. Their sin blinds them to the truth of the cross, just as you were once blind to the truth of the cross. And the only way that they'll ever understand is not by their knowledge or by anything else that they, that they can provide. The only way they'll understand is by the power of God. In other words, you don't have to be intimidated. You know, sometimes the people we respect the most reject the gospel, and that's intimidating. Maybe it's the, the brother or sister, you know, who always got good grades growing up. 
who always seems to know more about you than whatever you, whatever you happen to be talking about. Maybe it's the boss who shows incredible vision and leadership, who always seems to have the right answer and always seems to know the right decision to take the company to help it grow. Maybe it's the neighbor who went to college on scholarship and studied some advanced field and you know, maybe they went to med school or law school and then they aced that too and they reject the gospel. That can be intimidating to come across someone like that. It can make you think, am I just stupid or something? Is there something that they can see that I can't? But what you have to understand is that it's not you that can't see. It's them. What you have to understand is that as much as their credentials seem impressive to us, they don't help them one bit to comprehend God. You don't have to be intimidated by their apparent wisdom. You can stand confident in the, in the gospel, even as the world rejects it, knowing that the reason they don't get it isn't because they're smarter than you. Rather, it's because God has been gracious to you. He's opened your eyes to understand and believe. Once again, this is the first reason we can have confidence in the gospel when the world rejects it. We can, have, we can be confident because God intends to save through power, not wisdom. The second reason is this. We can have confidence because God intends to save through a foolish message. We can have confidence in the gospel when the world rejects it because God intends to save through a foolish message. Again, the world sees the cross and thinks it's foolish, and the world's reaction isn't accidental. Paul states that the foolishness of the message was performed according to the wisdom of God, and moreover, that this pleased him. Look at verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God planned it. God planned the foolishness of the cross. Why would it be wise for God to make it so that we can't figure out access to God in our own understanding? What is it about this that's pleasing to Him? Quite simply, it goes back to what we're seeing in Isaiah 29, 14 and its surrounding context. Again, man is rebellious. In his arrogance, man acts like he's the one in control, not God. You know, like it says back in those verses, God says, is the pottery going to tell the potter what to do? That's what mankind does. Man thinks he's in control, not God. You know, the Israelites praised the power of God with their lips while they sought Egypt for help, as if God didn't really know what was going on, as if they were smart enough to be able to hide their true thoughts and intentions from God. Listen, guys, it's no different when the unbelieving world demands that God gives them an answer which conforms to their liking in order to believe. They say things like, I refuse to worship Christ because this thing or that thing seems foolish to me. You know, I just, I can't believe in a God who punishes sin for an eternity in hell. I, I just can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering in the world. All these miracles, I mean the resurrection, come on, you really believe that happened? I can't believe that. The noted atheist Bertrand Russell, when asked what he would say if after he died he found himself before God and God demanded him to explain his unbelief, he said his answer would be, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. In saying these things, people create a set of criteria that God has to meet in order to be believed. He must be merciful, merciful enough. He must be loving enough. He must provide enough evidence. But if you stop and think about it, where is this criteria coming from? The criteria is set according to what that individual thinks is right. Hell seems unjust, so they reject it. Or a certain amount of scientific proof is not met, so they reject the gospel as foolish. These kinds of demands show that this person thinks they're ultimately the one in control. 
To make these kinds of demands is to attempt to flip the roles of authority in favor of the world. After all, it's the one in authority who asks the questions of those under their authority, is it not? And they do that in order to determine what should be done with the person under their authority. A police officer interrogates a suspect because they have the authority to arrest or release the suspect. And they're trying to figure out how to use that authority. When I was a vice principal, if I suspected a student had done something wrong, I would begin to ask them questions. You know, I'd say, what, what were you doing at lunch? Who are you with? What did you say? What were you thinking when this happened? And those questions were asked to determine if the subject was in conformity with what is right. It's a process of judgment, and it comes from the one with the authority to judge. The police determine whether or not the suspect is in conformity with the law, not the other way around. The vice principal determines whether or not a student is in conformity with school policy, not the other way around, because he's in authority, not the student. When a person demands that God conform to their wisdom in order to believe, they try to take God off the bench and put him on the witness stand. They try to play the role of judge by telling God that he must stand trial and answer for his actions. And they will declare whether or not he's worthy to be God, whether or not he's worthy to rule, worthy to be believed. They will see if he's in conformity with their liking and then make judgment over him. If there's not enough scientific evidence according to the view of science as they see it, or if the facts surrounding the message are too supernatural for their understanding of the world, or if God is not proven righteous in the way that they like to think of righteousness, then I'm sorry, God, you're dismissed. There's not enough evidence. You're not worthy to be worshipped by me. Guys, can you start to see how backwards that is? How offensive this is? It's the criminal asking the policeman or the judge to explain himself. It's the child demanding an explanation from the parent for their actions. When men do this, they demand that God answer to them. They forget who the creation and who the creator is. Understand, God is not required to answer to any one of us. This is why when Job starts to question God's wisdom in his suffering, God replies by saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And he begins to ask Job. He says, If you know so much, tell me. Where was the earth when it was made? How was it made? Do you know? Because I do. I was there. How much does it weigh? Do you know? Because I do. And by the end of this whole exchange, where God's just demanding Job to answer for himself, Job is speechless. He realizes his foolishness. He says, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've already spoken once, and I'm not going to do it again. To say to the one whose name is, I am who I am. To say to him, Prove to me why I ought to believe and worship you. That is utter foolishness. It's sin. And so in response to man's arrogance, God saves man in such a way that only he gets the credit for it in order to humble man. You know, there are many biblical examples of God doing things in a way that seem foolish in order to demonstrate that he's God and that men are not. I mean, think about Noah and the ark, right? God says he's going to judge mankind for his sin, but not without saving a remnant of the race to rebuild with. And so he says to Noah, now Noah, I want you to build an ark because it's going to rain. And now I don't know what Noah said back, but I could imagine it might have gone something like, that's great. What's rain? Right? Because it had never rained yet. And yet God is pronouncing judgment through this thing that hadn't even occurred before. Think about Jericho. God says to the people of Israel, march around a city with a bunch of trumpets, blow it a bunch of times, because that's how you're going to take the city. 
All right, now I ask you, is that a sound military strategy? All right? It's not. Think about Gideon in Judges 7. God delivers Israel into the hand of the Midianites because of their rebellion against him. The Midianites are described as locusts because of their overwhelming strength in numbers. And so God raises up Gideon and 32,000 men come out ready to fight Midian. And then God says, I don't want 32,000. That's too many. I only want 300. He tells Gideon, and I'm quoting here, he says, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so God says, I want you to whittle it down to 300. And then Midian is destroyed by each other as the Israelites blow their horns and drop, drop a bunch of empty pitchers and shout. Guys, this idea is no different in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I don't want you to miss the brilliance of this point, how God's choice to save through foolishness is really the wisest thing he can do in salvation. Since Genesis 3, man has sought to exalt himself above God. Right? That was the whole thing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was wanting to become like God. Man is in rebellion against God. And then man says to God, if you conform to my desires, God, if you just do what I ask you, then I'll worship you. And just so you know, that's a lie. It's like when Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew 4 and says, to him, all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours if you just worship me. That's a lie. Because the moment Jesus worships Satan, he submits himself to Satan. And all the kingdoms of the earth are still Satan's via his authority over Jesus. It's the same thing here. If God submits to man's desires, then man is greater than God. Man may claim he would worship God, but man becomes the object of worship if God submits to him and answers to his questioning. Now, if God seeks to restore man to his proper place, then man has to submit to God and his desires, which means that salvation must be by faith. The message of salvation must be contrary to what we esteem wise if we're going to end up properly humbled before God. The world sees God's message as foolishness, but when you stop and think about what he's doing, is actually incredibly brilliant. This is the only way his salvation will accomplish its purpose, which is our restoration as humble worshipers of God. Of course, the world in the Corinthians time certainly believed the gospel was foolish. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, uh, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. The Greeks had concluded through their philosophy that God doesn't suffer. They concluded that God, or rather the gods, were high above humanity. And so, therefore, they must be served by humans, not serve them. Then you have these Christians who come along, and they say, well, the Messiah actually is God who became a man. And he did this in order to serve mankind through his suffering on the cross. Christians, of course, also proclaimed Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and the Greeks thought this was utterly ridiculous. Many of them believed that the body had been philosophically proven to be bad. They thought that when you died, you would just become a spirit and lose your human body, and that this was a good thing. And then you had these Christians coming along and saying that actually when you die, you get your body back. That's ridiculous in their understanding. Well, why would you ever want that? Why would you ever want your physical body back? They looked for things that were wise according to human wisdom, and that wasn't the cross. Jews looked for signs according to their understanding of the law. They believed in a powerful and triumphant Messiah who was going to crush the wicked Romans and restore Israel to its former glory. And then the Christians came along and they said, you know, the carpenter that the Romans put to death? Yeah, that was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. The Jews said the law tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, meaning they believe crucifixion automatically eliminate a person 
from being the Messiah. And then Christians said, true, but Jesus became a curse for us on our behalf so that we don't have to experience the curse we deserve for our sin. Listen, it's no different in the world that we live in. The word of the cross is still foolishness to the world around us. Think about this. We take a weak and dying man, one who has been hated by his own people, a man not esteemed for his wisdom, but even hated by his own people and delivered up to the secular authorities around him, a man placed on the cross to die the most despised death imaginable. And then we say to the world, behold your Savior. I mean, think about it. We say a poor, uneducated country carpenter from a hick town in a no-name Roman province, who, by the way, died over 2,000 years ago, is the Son of God. Doesn't that seem just a little bit odd in that light? Doesn't it seem just a little bit ridiculous? Why would any of us believe this? It's a miracle that any of us would believe this message. And this is why Paul is saying that the word of the cross is the power of God to those who believe. But that's not all. Our beliefs about the significance of the cross also assault the sensibilities of our culture. After all, we say there is salvation in no one but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they can be saved. Friends, this is foolish in a world that slaps coexist bumper stickers on the back of their cars, in a world that claims that all religions basically say the same thing. We're considered to be narrow-minded extremists because we believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. We say that God is holy and that he punishes all who don't trust in Christ for salvation from their sins for an eternity in hell. Again, that's foolish in a world that sees God as a kind old grandpa who winks at our mischief. That's foolish in a world that believes that God's only attribute is love. We're consider considered ignorant spewers of hate for believing such a barbaric doctrine. We say that Christ demands holiness from his people, that there is such a thing called sin, and that God wants us to repent from it. Further, he demands that we take the cue of our Savior by completely surrendering our rights for the sake of others. That's considered to be hypocritical self-righteousness in the world's eyes. This is considered to be foolishness in a world that tells us that we should fight for our rights and that the only sin we can really commit is to deny ourselves of anything that would make us happy. This looks foolish to the world. And yet every single one of us, I would hope, in this room, truly believes that this is true. We know that every single bit of it is true. And we understand that there's no other way that we can be saved. Which is why Paul says, verse 24, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, Christians understand that in Christ there is true power and true wisdom. There is real power, the power to grant eternal life and reconciliation to God. Not power to merely elevate yourself before men and appear strong, but power to have life in God, the redemption of sin. This is a message that brings incredible change in the existence of those who believe. A change that takes one from being a condemned sinner before a holy God who knows all, sees all, remembers all, an object of his infinite wrath, and transforms that person into a chosen heir of the same God, an adopted son who's considered holy and blameless in his sight, an object of his supreme love and grace. The difference is like night and day. This is the power of the message of the cross. This is also real wisdom. It proclaims salvation by grace through faith. Meaning it truly acknowledges sin for what it is, an absolute evil that must be punished. God has proclaimed in his word that the penalty for sin is eternal death in hell, and yet men naturally believe that they can be saved from his wrath simply by being good enough before God. They think if I just help enough people, or if I go to church enough, or if I'm from the right family, then God will want to save me. Guys, this is the stuff that the scribes and the debaters believed back in Paul's day, and it's the kind of stuff that even your brightest university professors will believe today. And it's foolishness. 
The scripture tells us that God is perfectly righteous. He's utterly holy. He can't tolerate even one blemish of sin. And all man-made attempts to scrub out sin is not enough to erase sin from the vision of an all-knowing God. The penalty must be paid. It can't be avoided. God's wrath must be satisfied. In other words, according to the world's logic, your situation before God is rather helpless. The logical conclusion of man's wisdom should be that you can't be saved. But, if you can have someone face your penalty for you, then there's hope. And this is the wisdom of the cross. The gospel says Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life. That he willingly laid down his life to soak up God's wrath as a substitute for sinners. And that in three hours on the cross, this God-man managed to fully absorb the wrath of God. Now he offers his righteousness freely. And there's hope of salvation. All a person must do is believe in his name. That's wisdom. This message is the only message that accurately takes into account both man's sinfulness and God's holiness while still giving us hope for salvation. This is a message that in its foolishness restores man to his rightful place before God and that's on his knees in reverence and awe. That's wisdom. Paul closes his thought by stating, that God is able to arrange this foolish message to save because he's stronger than men. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is basically saying here that the reason why God can do all of this, why he can order things this way, is because he has more power and wisdom in his little pinky. <laughs> than in the whole race of man put together. It's because of this fact that God is stronger and wiser than all men combined that we're able to have faith in the cross. As Paul states in chapter 2, verse 5, he preached this way so that those who believe this message would not place their faith in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is indeed where we ought to place our faith. Not in our wisdom, not in the contrived philosophical arguments of men protecting sin in their lives, Rather, we place our faith in the power of God. I tell you, there are a number of implications that we can take away from this passage. But for those who believe, one major implication is that rejection by the world is inevitable. And we don't have to be intimidated by it. So many believers compromise on truth in order to try to appeal to the wisdom of the unbelieving world. They do this by, you know, perhaps taking a selective approach to the scripture. They'll say, yeah, I believe most of the Bible is true, but some of it can't be relied on. They'll deny historical events like the parting of the Red Sea or literal six-day creation, or they'll deny God's commands. They'll say, yeah, I don't think that such and such a thing really is a sin. It's kind of an outdated command. Or they'll even edit the gospel. They'll refuse to talk about hell. They'll refuse to say that belief in Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Or they'll spend all their time trying to prove the reality of God and the gospel to men through clever arguments that appeal to man's wisdom in an effort to convince them that Christ is intellectually appealing. They'll try to make Christ's people perhaps even look enough like the world that they no longer find God's commands offensive. And they do all these things because they want to be accepted by men, to keep others comfortable, to make others think that Christianity really isn't so foolish as what it sounds. They think to themselves, you know, we shouldn't be mocked. And guys, no. We should. We should be mocked by the world. Believe it or not, God wants it that way. It is wise in God's eyes to save through foolishness. And so God delivers this salvation by faith in the cross. According to everything natural in us, we know that only a fool can believe this message according to the world's wisdom, and yet we believe. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we should aggravate the world's unbelief by being a bunch of ignorant know-nothings or something like that, but I am saying that we should pursue God's knowledge and please God instead of man's knowledge to please man. Do not shy away from the cross. Cling to it. Proclaim it. Rest on the power of God to save anyone who hears this message. In short, I would just encourage you, be a fool for Christ. 
Don't try to be accepted by the world. You can't consistently be accepted by the world and clearly proclaim the gospel at the same time because God means for the world to reject this message as foolish. So accept the scorn, accept the ridicule, knowing that Christ said it was not men who testify about him, but rather the Father who sent him who testifies about him. Believers, you can have confidence in the gospel even when the world rejects it because number one, God saves through power, not wisdom. And number two, because God considers it wise to save through a foolish message. And when you pursue righteousness as a result of belief in this gospel, there's a reason you get it and others don't. The reason you believe is because God's Holy Spirit is working in you. The vast majority of the world is in sin and rebellion against God and all their knowledge can't get them any closer to belief in God because God saves through power through a foolish message. So you don't have to be afraid. When others reject the gospel as foolish, you can have even more confidence in God actually because when that happens, believe it or not, everything is going according to plan. In fact, be bold. Be a fool for Christ in a hostile world. Because in this message, the unadorned gospel, we find the power of God to those who would believe. So boldly proclaim it, because as you proclaim it, the wisdom and power of God's foolish message can be made known through you. Let's pray.